This podcast is brought to you by Tim Burkett, the author of a new book entitled Zen in the Age of Anxiety. Please listen to podcast number 674, where Tim and Greg discuss his new book. During their interview, they discuss the issues of unrest and dissatisfaction in our society today, and how the Zen perspective, along with meditation, can help one relieve their anxiety. Zen in the Age of Anxiety covers many topics, from how we look at money and the stress it creates in our lives, to how to live a life of humility and self-respect. If you're dealing with anxiety or issues of fear, then I highly recommend you listen to Greg's interview with author Tim Burkett about his new book, Zen in the Age of Anxiety. You can also learn more by going to Tim's website at www.mnzencenter.org, where you can read Tim's blog and learn more about the Zen practice. Enjoy this interview and podcast number 674 with author and Zen teacher Tim Burkett. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank Robert, all of my listeners who have supported this show for the last 14 years and 673 podcasts later. I'm still here doing it as I was just explaining to you. We have a returning guest. And uh, it's Dr. Robert Levine. He's a PhD professor of psychology at Fresno State University. And I interviewed him before, actually, believe it or not, for his book called The Power of Persuasion. Um, and that was How We're Bought and Sold. Fascinating book, by the way, for all of my listeners, if you haven't seen that. He also has another one called The Geography of Time. Um, which I would recommend as well. And today we're going to be speaking with him about his newest book, uh, which is called Stranger in the Mirror. Uh, good day to you, Robert. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me, Greg. Well, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. And obviously this show delves into personal growth, wellness, mastery, spirituality. We were just talking about Robert's son, over in the Amazon, actually uh, studying the Amazonian people and ayahuasca. So, and this book has a little bit of that in it as well. Uh, maybe not quite to that depth, but it's quite an interesting book. Robert, I'm going to tell my listeners a little bit about you. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, grew up there after graduating high school in 63, enrolled in the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he had some good luck experiences there in his hippie days, as he says, after graduating from Berkeley in 67, he went on to get a master's degree in, degree in clinical psychology from Florida State University in 69 and a PhD in personal social psychology from New York University in 74. How he found his way all the way to Fresno from those locations, I don't know. He's been a professor of psychology at the University of Fresno uh, for quite some time. He's the chairman of the department and associate dean of college in science and mathematics. And over the years, he served as the visiting professor at uh, Universidade Federal. How do you say that in Brazil? I don't want to uh, mess it up. Fluminense. <laughs> Aha. And he also has uh, uh, been in uh, Japan, Stockholm University in Sweden, 
and recently a fellow of the Institute of Advanced Study of Durham University in UK. Uh, he's married uh, and his wife was a retired school psychologist as well. And he has two sons. We were just talking about one of them. And, you know, this book, Robert, I probably would start this off like this is, you know, you've had some interesting books prior to this one. This is obviously another interesting book. And obviously being in the Department of Psychology, I like to delve in. What was it that the impetus that really got you to want to write this book and why now? Well, it's uh, <laughs> starting me off with a, with a difficult question, but uh, I, I would, um, I, you know, as a, as a social psychologist, uh, my, uh, my fundamentals are the, uh, uh, what's our, our kind of motto is the, the power of the situation. Uh, what we do as social psychologists is try to identify the features of the time and place that we're in and how they're often more influential in determining the way we're going to be, we're going to act, we're going to think, than the type of person that, that we are. So I began, I began this book as, uh, because, because I wanted to dig deeper into how that, how that situation, how these situations transform the person that we are. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you, um, if you're aware of any studies in social psychology, it would probably be either Milgram's, Milgram's obedience, obedience study, the famous shock study, or Phil Zimbardo's uh, prison study, and how you take otherwise normal, otherwise normal people and you can alter the situation, put them in a role, and they end up acting in ways that, 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 are, that are counter to everything that they ever thought about themselves. And that, that brought me to this idea of the, male, the malleability of the self. So that's what got me started. All uh, right. Well, um, you, you certainly did a good job in this book of, of looking at multiple personality disorders and twins. And uh, we're going to be talking about tapeworms that went into people's systems. And, you know, it, you really did cover a lot of ground. And as it ends up, it definitely gets the reader thinking about who we are. And I think really that is the stranger in the mirror. And in your first chapter, you speak about your experience of observing brain surgery. Um, somebody had a tumor and this profound effect that this had on you about what you thought about the brain and its functions as humans. Um, taking into account this, this small kind of thing that's inside of our skull that's really directing much of what we're doing. Now, this experience changed you, um, at least the way you wrote about it in the year in the book, and it started a personal inquiry uh, on to who we are, really are. Now, with your wisdom as a psychologist and your insight into what you've seen and experienced, who do you believe we really are if you look at this in the totality as a human being? You know, we've got flesh and bones, and then we have intuition, and we have the spiritual side, but your estimation you saw this surgery and you had this epiphany. <laughs> well, now you've gone from a difficult question to a very difficult question. Yes, uh, I added but, the other but, part. But a there. really good question. A really, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, 
it, it's certainly it's it's the sort of question that I've that I've tried to wrestle with it in the book and uh it, you know um to to give full disclosure um, I don't have a clear I certainly don't have a clear answer to that but well you know it, it it's a it's so much I think is the is one's point of view you know you know the the uh, physicists might think of it as uh, something akin to a, a multiple universe theory. Uh, uh, that uh, you, you know, here, here I was studying the situation, studying the kind of person that we can become, that we can transform into, and and what I did that brain, the brain surgery was, um, um, I, I I thought I'd expand my way of looking at at the question. So I thought I'd look at some of the quote higher, um, harder sciences and. Uh, uh, was invited to uh, to observe a brain surgery, you know, and I and 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 I'm looking at this um, at this person's brain. I'm, uh, the brain is exposed. Uh, the person is awake because it has to be in in a in a in a brain surgery, and you know, and and you're looking at you're looking in at this piece of this piece of meat, this piece of flesh, which of course is is the is the driving force in in everything, everything that we are. I shouldn't say, of course, because uh, some people would um, might see that differently. But um, and uh, you know, and so on that on that level, all all we are is a bunch of cells. We're a bunch of neural. We're a bunch of neural connections um, that um, you know are inherited to some degree, some degree, and they're uh, they're modified in in various in various sorts of ways. So we, we can look at ourselves that way and uh and also we can make the strong we can make a, a compelling argument that 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 what we're aware of what we're conscious of is uh is is um is kind of an, an after the fact event mm-hmm. um that uh uh the, the the real person the real decisions um are being made at and in some level somewhere somewhere deeper deeper in our uh in our cerebral in our cerebral cortex so you know there's that but then there's the uh, the person the person that we experience in 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 awareness and you know and that is clearly a multiplicity of people and uh you know i i always enjoy uh pushing that idea of um having people imagine themselves in different situations and then and then and and then asking you know do these people fit together with they do you have anything even to talk about um yeah so well, you know you, you know you did a really good job of articulating this i think and, and throughout this book with these stories and i want to let my listeners know that there's a lot of great stories in each chapter that that really fundamentally ground where robert's going and this one in chapter two on the two brains you speak about your desire to become an artist so you hire this art teacher and she provides you with some interesting insights and advice on how to look at the subjects you paint um in other words in detail right and i think this actually uh, is another turning point for you that we have two sides to our brain and that we need to learn to integrate both of them what right. advice would you have for the listeners where most people listening to this are aware of the left and right side of the brain and i think there's somewhat aware about the integration of this left side and right side of the brain um yeah. but how did this 
this art teacher influenced the way that you looked at this and in particular the what she really emphasized was detail yeah 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 uh it, what i what i learned i i i was uh, i always wanted to be an, an artist and uh never did very well at it and, and then uh picked up uh i want to give full credit to uh the writer uh betty edwards who wrote the book drawing on the right side of the brain and uh you know, and, and and what you realize when you start to draw is that um, it's it, it's an exercise in seeing. It's not in your hand. It's in your um, it's it's in your it's in your being able to see things exactly or as close as we can to the way they exist in the world. In the same way as as a writer, you know, uh, as uh, you well know, Greg, it, it's you know we we might we, we we you start to play with the sentences and you you it, it, it feels like it, the words the writing is on the paper, but it's not. It's in your head. It's thinking. And and in the, in the case of art, this was a very uh, drawing should, uh, drawing accurately. Uh, this was. Uh, this is not something that came naturally to me um, um, because what I had to do was shut off everything, shut off any kind of thinking, any kind of expectations, and just plain see. It was the equivalent of a, of a, of a powerful meditation exercise and just see precisely what is there. Forget about what a nose looks like. Just look at the lines or, or, look, or look at the shading. And once, and once I did that, um, I was, I would look at what I drew, what I drew, and and uh, and just couldn't believe how, uh, um, how much better it was than anything that I ever I had ever done before. So essentially, what I was doing was making myself stupid. I was I was what what you know exactly, completely counter to everything everything about my life as uh, as an as an academic. And what, this, and what this taught me was, you know, I mean, uh, the idea of the left and right side of the brain, you know, to use it metaphorically, obviously, you know, I still have an intact corpus callosum. Um, but what it taught me is the value of being able to um, choose, choose the kind of self that I'm going to inhabit at a particular, at a particular moment. And um, you know uh, you don't want you don't want to hear that drawing self right now because that drawing self has nothing to say other than look it goes up and then down and then to the left and 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 then to the right but um, but it serves its it serves its purpose um, it's it in in certain in certain contexts and this was this was really an eye opener for me. Um, Might okay. I ask you this question, Robert? Were you able to turn off the judging self, that ego self that said, "Hey, well, this drawing isn't so good"? Uh, very much like uh, I would say, very much the sort of conflict that I've experienced in in meditation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so the answer is yes and no. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's it's uh, it's always a battle. Uh, one of the tips that uh, the, the drawing instructor gave was uh, kind of take, taking advantage of the, the right hemisphere of that quote 
uh, unquote, uh, right hemisphere way of thinking, which is which is timeless, which isn't very good at keeping track of time. It's more that right. flow experience, that flow experience we all talk about. And and what I was and uh, the suggestion was um, uh, set an alarm for whatever you know thirty minutes say, and uh, and um, and then put everything away except for your drawing materials. Do your drawing. And wait for the alarm, and that that helped me turn off everything else. Uh, that because I, it, it just it, it kind of allowed me to put to put this uh, cerebral future future type thinking. Um, I could put that in the corner. It was easier for me to package it and put it away. Uh, but but it, it comes in very handy for me. That that kind of shift has helped me in in a lot of situations. You know. Right. It, it's helpful in meditation. It's helpful when I go for when I when I go for a walk. Um, I, you know, when I find myself uh, too much in one direction, um, uh, I, it's helpful. It's well, helpful. I think look, and throughout the book, you do a great job of articulating these stories and experiments, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, uh, to actually let people, you know, find out who the stranger is in the mirror. I don't think the thinking self. I know this is going to sound weird, actually thinks about the stranger. But your book does a good job of getting us to do that. Now, this next one really takes you into the sixth sense. And in chapter on the two bodies, there's you use this fake hand experiment that you talked about. And obviously, hopefully, it's not the one from the Halloween store, as you said. But you get people to sense this rubber brush being run over this fake hand. And most people sense that if it was their own hand. Right. It's like, yeah. hey, I can sense outside myself something that's going on, even though you weren't actually touching my hand. So you refer to this as the sixth sense. Now, this mental map that allows us to keep track of our own body. Explain, if you would, to the listeners about this phenomenal sensation and the degrees to which some people have gone actually to amputate limbs. You tell stories about that. Now, I had heard about this, but your book talks about it kind of in length. Um, it is it is a strange phenomenon, but it happens because people don't believe it should be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to back up a second on, on your question and then talk about it. Uh, is uh, This was, writing this book was the most interesting interesting experience that I've ever had as a psychologist because what happened was going from that initially I was going to do the social psychology and I thought I'd watch the brain surgery talk about a little bit of, of neuro but one thing led, led me to to another and uh, and it just it it, it, it opened up um, um, it opened up so many so many different ways of of thinking about who I am mm -hmm. um, who who I am as a person and and the one that you point to I think is a really good one um, it, it, uh, this I don't I don't even I don't know whether to call it a sixth sense it's more like a battle between between our sensory our sensory organs um, and uh, and uh, we know that the um, uh, the visual cortex is very large, and the visual cortex, uh, when when it, when information coming through vision is pitted against um, against um, information that comes through our tactile sensations, 
vision tends to uh, tends to take over. Um, and you know what? I'll, I'll I'll talk about the I'll talk about another uh, another experiment that I was uh, that I was part of that I think points to it even more clearly. And this was some work being done at the Karolitska Institute um, um, by um, uh, a couple of uh, a couple of neuroscientists. Uh, and uh, this is this is one uh, where with, um, um, there was um, a woman who was the experimenter um, who put a head who 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 wore a, um, a headset with a camera on it with a video recorded with a, with a video receiver um, and um, and I wore I wore a headset. Um, that I'm sorry. I will. I wore a headset that. <laughs> I I better start back on this little story as long as we're going to edit a little bit. Um, so so what happened in in this in this in this study, both myself and the experimenter um, put on these headsets. Um, her headset was um, a a video a video camera. Mine was a video receiver. So uh, what essentially happened is anything that she was looking at, I would see. Um, at that moment, we both rolled up our sleeves and looked down, uh, looked down at our bare arms, holding our arms in the same position. And, um, and what I would see in the position where my arm was supposed to be was her arm. Which was quite quite remarkable because uh, she was about thirty years younger than me, and she was a woman. And I'm looking down at this skin that's very different from mine. Um, but when I looked down at it, I felt very comfortable with it. And then we did this even odder thing. Uh, she came up to me, and and we sh and we and we shook hands. And uh, as you know, as you know, when you shake somebody's hand, you feel sensation, and you feel the sensation in your hand. Well, what as I was, I'm looking down and I'm seeing her hand where my hand is supposed to be, and I'm feeling this sensation in her hand. And what made it even odder is that I'm shaking what appears to be my own hand, and that became a foreign object. So what it what it demonstrated to me was just how arbitrary this this machine, this machine, our brain, and and our sensory and our sensory systems, um, just how how much, how quickly it can be sort of fooled. It could be made to it can it can lead to an experience that's counter to what we think of as something in the way of reality. In this particular case, it was it was the the visual cortex was uh, was was matched against um, was uh, this uh, this sensory um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the tactile sense in my hand. I'm seeing, I'm seeing her arm, um, uh, but of course it's my my tactile my tactile sensation, and which one is going to win? And it was the visual cortex, and it felt very natural. It felt very normal, um, and it it was an indicator to me. It was it was an eye opener to me. About just how how uh, how malleable how malleable our cells are, even on this mere sensory level. Oh, most definitely. I mean, 
you you cited that and I and I thought that it was a great opportunity to really give the listeners a little bit more information about you know how our sensory system works beyond you call it the sixth sense I think you actually call it and I don't want to mess up the name P R O P R I O C E P J O N. How do you say that? Uh, proprioception. Yeah. Proprioception. So yeah. that is yeah. that is definitely what was going on. Now you you know you your chapter on multiple personality disorders. Now I guess that your society refers to this as dissociative identity disorder, uh, which it's now called. You cited several stories in the book of people who've been diagnosed diagnosed with this disorder, meaning multiple personalities. But and then you state that there's a smidgen of multiple personalities in all of us, and and I would agree. I mean, I see this happen with people that I know. I see it happen in myself. Um, comment because obviously you've studied this for years and you understand. I mean, some people have a, a really severe case of it where they take on the other person, or we have a smidgen of it, as you said, uh, just a little bit, where people see these aspects of our personality change drastically. And this is the stranger in the mirror, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, you know, the uh, I'll refer to it as multiple personality disorder because it's what we usually think of it as. And, and this and this is very controversial and it's been so over-dramatized now that um, it, it, it becomes, um, it, uh, it, 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 it's certainly arguable as to, uh, um, as to how many true cases of, uh, there are of, of kind of Sybil or three faces of Eve type uh, uh, type of people, but but what is absolutely clear is that you know if if you um, if you think of yourself in different contexts, you think of the person that you are, um, the, the person that you are when you're with when you're with your mother or your father, uh, the person you are with your best friend, the person you are with your lover, the person you are if you're sitting in a classroom or or when you're in a restaurant and somebody is serving you. And uh, you know, think about those kind of people, those those selves, those those personas that come out. And it's not just the way you appear; it's the way you feel at that moment. And uh, you know, I I I like to think about um, uh, take these people and uh, and invite them invite them over to your house for dinner. Take all these folks and have them sit around the table and and ask uh, what would they talk about. Um, would they would they like each other? Mm-hmm. And then and at that point, at that point, the, the, we we can talk about these really dramatic transformations, kind of like that uh, the Milgram and the Zimbardo study, uh, when we're given a new role um, uh, for 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 those of you that um, are parents. Uh, I think that's a that's a, a wonderful example. Uh, the moment you have a child. Um, who is the person that comes out of you as a father or as a mother? Uh, and it's it's often a person you just you watch coming out. You don't even you feel like you, you don't even know that person until un, until until you start to uh, to adapt adapt to the person get get used to that person. Uh, and sometimes and, and you don't where, even where know. Where does it come from? Yeah, it, and you know it, just to comment. Uh, as you evolve in age, which you and I are certainly have done over the years, and 
or maybe who, who knows, but my point is people's personalities change also as they age. You know, you put a story in the book about this uh, stranger in the mirror. You speak about Yolanda, who this is woman with dementia. And every time she looked in the mirror, she saw a woman by the name of Ruth. Um, and how does something like this happen? And you state that this strains the boundaries of self and identity uh, to make peace with this, because this is like making peace with ourselves. Um, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think that, look, it doesn't matter if we had dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever goes on, let's call it physically with inside of our brain, the chemical changes, the changes with inside there. Um, this, this is happening to this woman and she really believes she's Ruth. Um, how many of those people might we have inside of us? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I want to add something to the Yolanda Ruth story. Uh, what makes it even more fascinating is that um, if she looks, uh, when, she, when she looks into the mirror, if you were standing next to her, yeah, she sees Ruth where she is, but she sees you. So mm-hmm. it, it's, clear, it's clearly not a vision problem. And, uh, you know, one can look as a, um, as a neurologist or as a clinical psychologist, um, you know, to explain the motives behind it. But I think, as you very well put it, this is her experience. This is her, her brain. And uh, this is, you know, this is, uh, uh, this is the, the, uh, rea- the, re- the reality. Uh, and uh, we, you know, we, we all, um, uh, we've all had that experience of, glancing in that mirror and at some point you say, look at what I've become, you know, is this, is this me? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I mean, because who, who is me? Who were you talking about? Was me, so w- was there a real me from a year ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago? Uh, well, there you was know? one point in the book where you talked about people who looked at themselves in the mirror and they've aged and they saw this, sagging this or the sagging that whatever and that's that's true i guess the question is 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 as you're morphing over the years um really being okay with whoever that new self is and i think your next story that you tell in the book and is we everybody out here listening today knows these stories about identical twins and some of them get you know, separated, or maybe they're not identical and they get separated, they get raised by different parents. They're sensing the other person, right? We see stories like this all the time. When they get back together, they see all of these similar personality traits. What in your estimation, if these two twins born pretty close at the same time, tell us about ourselves and our sense of going beyond our bodies or this sixth sense? Because, you know, there's one twin that'll say, well, I felt this. I felt my twin do that, right? Um, so this is another element of that stranger in the mirror, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, you, you know, it, it's uh, it's another way of seeing of seeing that person that we think of as our as ourselves. Uh, you know, here here we have people who who share, um, who have an unusual degree of sharing of genetic material, and uh, and they find that. They find that even even 
you know, identical twins living apart, you know, these uh, number of studies in the past, and uh, and just how similar they are when they when they get together, and uh, and you know, and if if one when we did some surveys and and we asked people uh, how would they feel about that, how would they feel about meeting their uh, their behavioral their behavioral clone. And uh, and most people are very uncomfortable with that. At least people in the United States, we found. Uh, but uh, identical twins don't generally feel that way. Uh, it's uh, they feel they feel a real kinship to that other other person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's I think that the stories that you weaved into Stranger in the Mirror do a great job of getting the listener to think about who they really are. And I think this next one, actually, I thought was one of the best. And you have a great insight on the chapter. You say, who thinks these thoughts or the thoughts? You state that, are you aware of, even if you're capable of originating an idea? So in your estimation, where do, because I just wrote a book called Hacking the Gap, a journey from intuition to innovation and beyond. And I really believe in intuition. I believe that, you know, it's not just the brain that comes up with these. So now we're going outside into a realm of spiritual connection, connecting the dots, however you want to put it. But so in your estimation, where do ideas come from? And are we the ones originating those ideas and thoughts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, yeah, the example right. the the example that we just talked about uh, about you know, when you become a parent and that person comes out. Now that's not just an idea; that's a whole person. It's a whole set of values, beliefs, norms, Darwinian Darwinian forces. Um, obviously, they're inside you. Uh, they come from somewhere inside you. But um, you know, w- where were they stored? Were they living? Were they living in some kind of a room? Um, uh, how did they? How did they get? Ext- how did they get extracted? Were they? Were they edited as they came out? Um, all that we know is that is that they they appear. The same uh, we know when we talk about ideas, specific ideas and specific choices. Uh, studies that have been done, Benjamin Leibert, uh, a famous study where uh, he hooked people up to uh, uh, what would be nowadays an fMRI. You know, at that point it was just an EEG. He asked them to make a decision and to mark the exact moment they make the, that they made their decision. And what he finds is that there's a spike of activity in the brain before the person says that they um, they made their decision at uh, so with the um, uh, and if you have questions about the measurement on it there I could give a long uh, a long answer why um, they were measuring it accurately uh, and the uh, the conclusion that he draws is that there's no such thing as as free as free choice because we don't become aware of the decision until the decision has been made. So in that sense, this is counter counter to what you're saying. But what I would say is that, yeah, of, co- of course, there's activity going on below the level of awareness. We're driven by, you know, 
whatever conglomeration of forces and from culture to parental upbringing to to what happened to us 15 minutes before and uh, and we just find ourselves making decisions or thinking or thinking about things but uh to say that that i i I don't believe that that means that we have no control over our decisions. Uh, it's more, I see us as more in awareness. We have an editorial function uh, where we can, we can observe the way we're, the decisions that we're making or the kind of, or the kind of situ or the kinds of forces that we're facing. And, um, and the way and the way we're inclined to we're inclined to behave, and and if we're if if we're honest with ourselves and if we're careful with ourselves, we can then say to ourselves that you know I really don't like the way that I'm acting. Um, I would and somehow wherever those hidden dis, that hidden place where these decisions are made, we seem to have some control. Over over its future actions, so I don't like I don't like that. Um, you know, in the morning, um, uh, I'm kind of I'm rude to that to that waiter in the in in the restaurant. I just tend to be snotty with that waiter, and somehow I'm able to decide that tomorrow I'm not going to be I'm not going to be doing that. And uh, then of course we can talk about. Um, this idea of the malleability of our neural connections, that, that neural plasticity idea, perhaps we can actually change ourselves. So I, I, think, to, uh, I think it's oversimplifying to, uh, to look at it as an either-or. You know, is it something that's predetermined or is it something that we have control over? Um, there's, I feel very strongly that we do have this small degree of control but it's very important to recognize that uh, that we're uh, that that this degree of control is needs to be needs to be used against a formidable force, which are which are those little those hidden places where the decisions are made. Well, I think that in throughout your book, Robert uh, Stranger in the Mirror, you take the readers on a journey. And the journey is to create where, greater awareness about what happens to us along the way. What are some of the things um, that you've articulated that get us to look at who we really are? And if there's any one thing the book left me doing, is it left me saying, hey, look, a lot of these things that he writes about in the book I, it validated some experiences I've had, you know, like mm. 71% of the people hear auditory voices. Well, I hear voices, uh, you, but I'm not schizophrenic. Uh, right. You know, uh, I actually get these originating ideas, right? How I act on them, I can't really tell you, but I have an intuitive sense on the one that I act on. Um, yeah. You know, feeling other people's thoughts or senses. I, f I feel that. I sense that. And I think, yeah. you know, people will say, well, are you clairsentient? Are you clairaudient? Are you clairvoyant? Are you something? And I say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of all of those, right? And I think we all are because we can fine tune those with inside of ourselves. And we actually get to, as you look at, see this stranger in the mirror uh, that is really not 
who we think it is all the time. And yeah. I think you did a great job with that. And so oh, for my listeners, um, we've been on with Robert Levine. He's a PhD. Uh, he's at Fresno State University. And his website is www.boblevine.net. There you can find his books, his research, his teaching, consulting, resources. Um, you can obviously get this book on Amazon. Uh, it's called Stranger in the Mirror, The Scientific Search for Self. Um, I highly recommend it if you're interested in actually learning a little bit more about, you know, who you really think you are, not just who you are, who you think you are, because I think there's an element there of what we all think about ourselves, Robert. Um, mm -hmm. And and truly, um, you know, this is a book that is going to stimulate your thinking. It's going to not only stimulate your thinking, it's probably going to stimulate you to some action as well. So, Robert, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, taking some time to speak with our listeners. Is there anything that you want to leave them with before? Um, we part. <laughs> oh, let's see. I'll I'll leave with a uh, uh, a quick a quick story from a uh, uh, a playwright that uh, playwriter that I that I knew who who would always have he'd always be juggling a lot of different uh, um, a lot of different scripts and developing characters, and he said that what he would do when he was working on a character, uh, if he felt it wasn't quite done, he would imagine that he was putting it on kind of a little fishing pole and dipping it in a, in a pond in the back of, his, back of his mind. And he had a lot of these characters back there. And, uh, and every once in a while, um, he would check in on them. He would pull them up and take a look and see, are those characters... Are those characters well enough developed? And uh, if they were, he would pull them out. If not, he'd put them back for a little more time. And, uh, <laughs> I, and I, I, I feel like uh, one of the things that, I, that I've learned, in, that I've learned in, in going on this, on this journey with, um, uh, with, this, with this book is, uh, is to uh, kind of treat, treat myself in that kind of mechanical way somehow, somehow as... Uh, and these, the things that are happening are inside of me are a little bit like the things that are happening outside of me, and uh, and I, for one, at least when when I do when I do that, uh, it can be, if you'll excuse the uh, the buzzword, it can be empowering. Well, it is empowering, and I think that uh, again, we don't always think where these thoughts come from, because just like you said. They seem very automatic. Uh, it's like me interviewing you for this. Preparing for this um, can take hours. Uh, the time we spend together, less than an hour. Uh, the reality is, is that the insights that come don't always come exactly from the words on the pages. So it comes from a set of experiences that I draw upon after having done, you know, almost 700 interviews at this point. And I think that's what we're really talking about here is, you know, how do we pull all these dots together and who are we in the process uh, of doing that? What have we become? Um, you know, so it, it's, it's quite interesting to me every time I do this 
and the wonderful experiences I have with the authors every time I do the interviews. So I appreciate you. I appreciate the work you're doing. I want to acknowledge you for this new book. I can tell that there was a lot of heartfelt work, work that went into this. And for my readers, please go out and get a copy, the listeners. Um, go to the website, like I said, boblevine.net, and you'll learn more about him and the book. Pleasure having you on, Bob. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. I, uh, I, I always enjoy talking to you. Yes. Yeah.